Hi, I'm Sharon Betters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. You can visit markinc.org where you'll find numerous free resources designed to offer help and hope to hurting people. I am really glad that you are joining me today for a conversation with Andrea Mayer. Andrea is the author of Slammed, Overcoming Tragedy in the Waves of Grief, A Survival Guide, but she is also the former editor-in-chief of Parent ABCs, which is a, was a monthly magazine dedicated to helping parents navigate the everyday concerns of family life. Her column, Family Matters, has been featured regularly in lo- local newspapers and parenting publications nationwide. So I think you get that Andrea cares about families, and she's dedicated her life to helping families. She is now the executive director of the Be Still Foundation which develops educational programs that advocate responsible decision-making for the prevention of risky behaviors and providing strategies to overcome adversity. When you hear Andrea's story, you're probably going to understand why she is so passionate about the work that she does. And I am so grateful to have Andrea here. Andrea's husband is John. She's been married to him for over 38 years, and they are the parents of four sons. They enjoy their six grandchildren in Cape May, New Jersey, where they reside. Andrea, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Oh, Sharon, it's a pleasure. I'm excited to be able to be with you. Andrea, on your book cover, Slammed, is a picture of a beautiful, happy family. It looks like it's taken right out of a a Disney World shot. They're walking on the beach, but behind them is this huge, huge wave that's about to slam right into them. What is the significance of that picture to you? Well, it's interesting. It's actually twofold. The idea of being slammed, when you have experienced something like that, it brought me immediately to my childhood where I grew up around the beach in a shore resort. And that feeling you have when you're in the ocean and suddenly a wave comes that you hadn't seen and it just knocks you off your feet and you're disoriented. So when I had been through some of the trials that came into my life, I could only explain it by saying I felt slammed. And so obviously being a beach girl, the picture of an ocean came clearly into my mind, that unknown, unexpected wave. And I think as anybody knows, no one is ready when calamity happens. That's why it's called calamity. Well, I, I can certainly relate. I love the ocean. I didn't have the privilege of growing up uh, near a beach, but I certainly can remember those times when I got pulled under by that unexpected big wave. And it can be terrifying when you're trying to reach for air and, and get that, that gulp that's going to save your life. So knowing your story, I think it's very appropriate that you had that picture on your book. Well, tell us about your family before that first tidal wave hit you. Well, you know, like any family, we were very committed to our children, family life. I became a Christian at a young age, at 20, got married early. My husband and I both kind of went through the process together of growing in the Lord. And when we had these children, I I just could not imagine doing anything else at the time but raising them. So we threw ourselves into our children. They were our number one priority. We have a close-knit extended family. My mother has a unit behind my house prior to her death. My brother lives a couple doors down. My sister's around the block. So pretty traditional family-oriented people. 
my husband and I, from the onset, always had this vision of that we would have a, an intentional parenting, I call it. Like we truly, I don't know if the Lord laid it on our hearts, but I guess because we were so busy with the boys that we always had this way of trying to stay centered in our faith through all the everyday life of, you know, sports and school and things like that. So I would just say that we were just a regular, strong, God-fearing family, uh, close-knit, and certainly never expected any um, waves to hit us. How blind was I then? Uh, You know, as you get older, you realize that. But at the time, you just think, hey, if I do everything the right way, surely all the outcomes are going to line up. Well, not necessarily true. Yeah, I can relate to exactly what you're saying. And when that that huge wave hits you, it is like, what what just happened? How how in the world could this have happened? A friend told me that she felt pretty in control of her parenting. And she was pretty content with the results of her parenting. And then as she said, life happened. It seems like that's a common experience for many of us. And in fact, I recently read a uh, statistic that said that you know, Christian families, it used to be when they would gather for prayer meetings and so on, you'd get prayer requests for my aunt who's having hip replacement or something like that. But today it's uh, one in three families who consider themselves to be Christian families, raise their children as Christians. One in three are asking for prayer for a child who is making life choices that are devastating to their parents. And so it's common. It's so common to be hit with that wave. How did life happen for you on that terrible first day of being slammed by life? Well, you know what? It wasn't exactly that first day. That was my giant tsunami. But Mm. frankly, having a child, I would say we had smooth sailing. I'm going to keep to my little nautical terms here. We had Mm -hmm. smooth sailing for until my oldest son was 17. So that's pretty amazing considering the twists and turns that happened after that point. Our boys were all extremely active in school, great athletes, honor students. I coached them in grade school. They were in Christian school, and then they went to public high school. So it happened in my son's junior year that I started to notice changes in him. And it was really the first time in my life where I felt a lack of control because he started to like break rules, you know, Mm -hmm. cut school. I found pot in his, you know, clothes coming home from school one day. So those kinds of things that for me was initial slams, like that, Mm -hmm. that grappling with what's happening, Lord. But I do want, I want to stress something right there. When those initial little um, pulls of the rug happen under my feet with him, Each time was like another level and it just began to change me because suddenly Mm -hmm. I realized I didn't have complete control and that Mm -hmm. my faith that I thought was so strong because at the time, of course, I'm teaching Bible study. I'm teaching Sunday school. I'm doing all those things that good, strong Christians do. But with such smooth sailing, I guess I never really needed to like break my knees at the foot of the cross in helplessness. Mm So it was these initial things that was my initial little um, nudges that things were just kind of going south. And then a second little, what I would call slam, was when the same son dropped out of college. That, again, was another red flag that we are now 
detouring into no man's land. And Mm. so all of these little things was an 11 year struggle. It was an 11 Mm. year process between me um, growing in the Lord in terms of um, patience and and endurance and faith and, and, and pleading for this son. Mm. And at the same time, it was a process for this oldest son of mine who and and it's almost sounds like a dichotomy or that it could be oh that sounds delusional but trust me when i say this son was very strong in the lord he was my son that when i he's very philosophical very introspective was reading great authors like at a young age like rabbi zacharias and um mm. you know just the deeper books he read all of the cs lewis um the whole series, um, I can't think of the series right off the top of my head, but there was a strong series having to do with spiritual warfare when my kids were in school. And John just digested all of those books. And so watching this young man as he began to make choices that were contrary to this the spirit of the living God that was in him, he would go from being off track to then coming back so strong. So it was an intense struggle. And every time now, two of the cases where he was indulging in drug use, he was never. It's hard to explain this to like today in the culture where there's the opioid crisis. We never had that. John, John's case was where he would be doing pot and he might be doing some pills and then he would get into a bad place. And then next thing you know. He would check himself into these amazing, we had two Christian rehabs in New Jersey and I mean, God centered and he would go there. He stayed at one for four months, never had withdrawals, none of the, like the typical stuff that you would have. Nevertheless, it was still drug use. So in retrospect now, of course, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but I look back and see that he did suffer with depression, which is a lot of my husband's side of the family has. So you know, at the time I'm looking at it and it, to me, it was all like choosing failure, choosing the wrong road. What is wrong with this mm. kid? Snap out of it. What is your problem? Um, having said that, the times that he was in the Christian rehabs and watching him on fire for God and then only to come back, do well for a while and then return to, you know, mm. um, a bad situation, which ultimately wound up taking his life. So. Mm. Um, I will say that that first day and the tragedy of being slammed, I never expected that. Obviously, God's ways are not our ways. And I had my own idea. This son is going to be a pastor. This mm. son has so much spiritual depth. And I used to say that to him. I'd say, John, you are going to be so used because of the struggle that I've seen for seven years. like just go on and on in your life. Mm. Um, so when he was found, on the side of the road, he had ran out of gas. He was under the influence that was of cocaine. But what killed him was, I guess, because he was under the influence, he froze to death. He mm-hmm. died of hypothermia in his car. It was the mm-hmm. coldest night of that winter. And so having said that, when we were told and the state troopers came to tell us, my first thought in my brain was this was not the ending that I had been praying for. Anyway, so that was our that when life happened on that terrible day, it was um, Mm -hmm. certainly a slam because as much as he was on a track that was up and down, in and out, 
you still, as a parent, you know what you have placed in them. You know the Lord's hand upon them. And you just have this idea that all things are going to work out. And guess what? Sometimes they don't. So we could talk a little bit later about the lessons you learn from that. But that's that's really where, where I was first, like, truly slammed with the weight. Andrea, um, you and I share some of life's journey in that we both know what it is to lose a child. And our son, Mark, was 16 when he was in a fatal car accident with his friend. And that's one of the, the things that uh, led us to one another. Um, I remember right after the week after Mark's death, going through my journal and reading so many prayers specific to Mark and his brother, Daniel. But you know, praying for God's protection, recognizing the vulnerability of him as a young man, all of those things. And then that week writing in my journal, Lord, this is not the answer I was looking for, you know, with um, the, so I really resonate with what you're saying. And I want to suggest to the listeners that, of course, we're limited by time to be able to dig into so many of these beautiful truths that Andrea has experienced. But her book, Slam, she goes into a lot of detail about um, those hard days and what sustained her, which we'll be talking about some, but I would heartily recommend that you pick up her book, especially if you're struggling with a child or you have a friend who's struggling with a child who is making similar choices. It is a painful journey, but I love what you said about how God used those 11 years really it seems to me to prepare your heart and your soul for the anguish that was coming in the days after your son's death. What was your response? How, how did you, how did you even survive in those, those first days? Well, and Sharon, you know, all this, you're very familiar with grief. Um, in fact, I just have to mention that I, in the months to follow, I am a reader anyway, since I like to write, I'm obviously a reader. And I can't tell you how many books on grief that came my way. And in God's amazing economy, it was your book, Treasures in Darkness, that was the one book that I held on to that I felt Mm -hmm. resonated in my heart and soothed a lot of the issues of my heart at the time. So Mm -hmm. isn't it amazing, we eventually would meet and and how our lives have intertwined. But back to the fact of the reaction. Um, let me just say this. I believe that, like the word says, if you build your foundation upon the rock, you will fall onto that living rock. But if it's upon the sand, you can be very much eaten up by a situation like this. I am amazed to be reminded and to find out later, although I vaguely remember it, that when everyone started to show up at my house and a lot of my Bible study women heard about it and came right over, they said, and now I remembered it after they told me months later, as they're all standing there and we're all, you know, you just feel like you're just paralyzed. But mm. I said, can we pray? And they mm. all looked at me and we went into my study and here I am surrounded by like eight women. And no one could pray. Everyone was weeping. And Sharon, I prayed. And I, to this day, I wish, I say, Lord, because I know I was just probably praying only through the Holy Spirit. The groanings Mm. were coming out and pouring out. But I, to this day, think, Lord, you just carried me. Where did I? And to them, to my ladies, they were like, 
how did you do that? But it was later when they brought it up and I'm like, I forgot I even did do that. So my initial reaction was that, but having said that, as the days progressed, and as you know, people come in, the funeral's being planned. Um, I went into a very silent mode and I really believe my only conversation was between me and God and Sharon, it was limited. It was limited. It was like, God, what is happening? And, and I just believe those little, you know, short cries of my heart, they were being soothed, but it was no further than that. I do remember having, um, a heart palpitation, like a, a, my heart would race in the middle of the night. Um, I couldn't sleep. Remember that I, I kept turning the covers on and off, like in restlessness. But through those initial days, I just did a lot of wrestling with God. And, and I'm telling you, it is, and as you know this too, it's through those experiences that we know we have a living God because we, we know the covering, we know the comfort. And believe me, he was right by my side carrying me through this. And if he wasn't carrying us, we'd be in a lot of trouble because yeah. we're beating on his chest and um, he's holding us tightly in his grip. And I, I would uh, say to anyone who's listening with a broken heart, and uh, maybe you are just right there with Andrea right now, that um, what she's really describing is lamenting mm-hmm. and crying out to the Lord and pleading with him. And I think there are some Christian circles that think that that's sinful, that it's heretical, but it is not. I, I want to assure you that when you run to the Lord, he welcomes you. He's not afraid of your questions. He wants you to pound on his chest as his child, and he's holding you tightly the same way you would your own child. So I, I appreciate what you're saying, um, Andrea. As the days went on, uh, I know that initial shock that's there, you can't even think straight, but did you ever question God's goodness or his love for you? That's such a good question because I will say I never questioned God's love for me. However, I did question his ways. I wrestled, not that I questioned it. I, mm-hmm. I wrestled. I, I wasn't, my human mind wasn't understanding, but Again, slowly but surely, as you say, treasures in darkness, that's what I felt like. I was continually given these beautiful little spiritual gifts from heaven mm-hmm. that encouraged my heart. One of them was I found my son's journal. And, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness, the, the poetry and the words that he wrote mm-hmm. to his Lord and Savior brought me such comfort because, mm-hmm. you know, there was so much anxiety there as to, you know, where was John's mind and heart? But that journal completely solidified God's grace in my life to me and it encouraged us. You were digging deep into that foundation that you had been building for so many years um, through the word, through personal study, through the study that you were offering to others. And You've mentioned uh, through your book, you do keep with that nautical theme of, uh, of life preservers. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing you say is prayer, a prayer, a simple prayer, like the prayer of a child uh, that's just saying, Daddy, help me. The word, digging deep into what the word teaches you, uh, you were pushing these circumstances through your worldview and how important it is for us to have that biblical worldview and that intimacy with Christ. You described your life and your family and your book so beautifully. I mean, we, we've, you kind of gave us that picture of an all-American family. I mean, I can just imagine you guys at Fourth of July picnics and parades and ball games and 
all of those things. The one thing that we haven't mentioned is that your husband is in law enforcement. So how did the community react? You're a community leader. People know your family. How did they react to your son's death? So my husband is a chief of police at the time of our son's death. He's now currently an executive under sheriff in our county. But at the time of John's death, he was a chief of police. And at the same time, remember, I'm writing a column, Family Matters. So <laughs> I've got like, you know, this advice that I've been doing for years. And now we have this terrible situation that the whole community knew about. And there was, it was mixed, Sharon. I will say this, you know who your friends are when you go through hard times and you know those that yeah. truly love and stand by your side and know who you are as a family. But at the same time, there was some really negative stuff that was put out there. And I'll give you one example that I think will give us a clearer understanding. My husband at the time, as chief of police, there was a new Little League field that was opening and he was already slated to be the speaker. And a couple families objected to the board and said they did not want him because of what happened to his son with drugs. And I remember at the time just feeling for my husband when he came home with that. And he said, well, maybe I should, you know, step down. And I encouraged him. Absolutely not. So he went to the board and they said, no, we want you to do it. And I didn't attend. Of course, they're the things that are too hard in the beginning. And, you know, I have mm -hmm. to admit, and I'll be honest, there are things I hid from, and I was not attending that public thing community-wise. But John did, and he gave, from what I heard, the most amazing, beautiful exhortation to those parents about children mm -hmm. and, and the grief that he was walking through. And that no matter mm -hmm. the fact that we had them in Little League and we had them in basketball and they're soccer players and they all had athletic scholarships, Life happens and you have to be ever vigilant and more so you have to know where to go when life does crumble around you. And he testified of his faith. And it was, from what I heard, an amazingly beautiful mm. tribute to his God, to his faith and to his integrity. It, I, I probably people felt like they were on holy ground because here's a broken hearted dad speaking so eloquently uh, from his own experiences. I, I wish I could have been there. I wish they had taped it so it could be shared widely. I imagine um, that at times you, you looked back over your son's life and thought, if only we should have done this, we should have done that. Where did we fail? How did we fail him? Did you have any feelings like that? And if you did, how did you deal with them? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I will tell you, I felt especially because I wrote a column and I was very vocal. I sat on the women's commission in our county and I kind of just espoused that traditional conservative thought. Mm -hmm. And I when this happened to John, I felt shame. I felt like mm -hmm. we looked like failures, obviously. Um, and I wrestled with that, but it was my husband who really gave me a sense of balance about that because it was a revelatory time for me in many ways because I started to realize how I was putting um, a different kind of a judgment on those sins that were the kind of sins you could see, those people that drink, mm -hmm. those people that, you know, get high versus the sins that our Lord also is just as strong about, which is being mm -hmm. judgmental, um, you know, gossiping, all those sins that we put into lesser and greater categories, which don't exist. So God was, again, he was retooling 
my the work that he was doing in me that would eventually be used to comfort other people, um, that that wasn't a failure because John always used to say, you know what, Anne, do you take all the pats on the back for and our children have received a great many honors. One was like a salutatorian. I have a son who's a, a all American soccer player. I mean, so many community um, worthy uh, accolades. So he said, but do you always feel like all puffed up? Like, wow, we did a great job. And I'd be like, no, I always felt blessed. And he's like, well, when things don't go the way you think they should, why are you wearing that on your back? Because that really mm. does deny and um, not accept the sovereignty of our God. And so mm. that was a, that really was a game changer for me in my heart. I started to think, you know what? Mm. I'm going to walk with my head hell high. And I'll tell you something else, Sharon, immediately when this happened, because we were so visible in our community and because maybe we did look like we had it all together. And of course, Andrea is writing about having it all together. The minute this happened, the door of ministry swung wide open. And I remember almost a month later, there was a knock at my front door and it was a neighbor who I had known for years. She knocked on my door in tears and mm. said, I didn't know who I could talk to about this, but I knew I could tell you. And her child was doing drugs. Mm. Like, so mm. it was almost like God was like, see, and I have, and, and I've given you the right words Anne, because you know me as savior. So yeah, it was a struggle. I won't lie and say it wasn't, but I, I don't wear that at all. Now I just hold my head up high mm. and say, you know what? Our Lord gives, our Lord takes, and whatever he gives to us, we're going to walk in it. We're going to walk in it well. One of the things that you've said several times is how God was dealing with your heart from the very beginning of when you started discovering that John was using drugs and he was on that pathway of sometimes good days, sometimes bad days, but that the Lord was shining the light on you. And when I talk to parents, uh, I've had this experience myself, and I talk to other parents, as you said, when your knees are bent to the cross, it drives you to the cross. And many of them have said, I don't want to ever go through this again, but I will not trade what God has given to me through this darkness as I have run to him with my pain and my anguish. And it is, it's hard to explain to someone who has never walked that way, but the treasures in the darkness, you know, that we're not going to receive or see or be aware of any other way unless there's that the darkness uh, where they shine. So um, it sounds like that's one of those. And, and, and John's life has given you a platform for offering help and hope to others in a way, as you just said, that you wouldn't have had unless they saw you as frail and broken the same way that each of us is. I. I think that just this story is enormous and the grief and the anguish that you have experienced is a tidal wave, but that wasn't the end of your story. About three years later in your book, you said that you were emerging from the backside of the desert. You were filled with hope as you saw God giving you a platform through your son's death to offer help and hope to other hurting families. But then once more life happened, another tidal wave flattened you. 
Before you describe what that devastating blow was, tell us about your son, Matt, and your special relationship to him. Oh, yes. I have a smile on my face right now. Of course, as we know, (laughs) any parent (laughs) that has children, there's something about the youngest, right? They hang around longer. (laughs) (laughs) They've been around, and there's just this unique relationship that he and I had, um, being the youngest of four brothers. I think another thing that added to that was that Matthew got to watch the struggle that we were going through with John because the other two boys were off into college and career at this point. So Matt was truly the closest to seeing the struggle, to seeing my tears, also a very protective young man. And at the time, too, um, I was doing a grant for the state of New Jersey, teaching abstinence education in all of our local schools. And when Matthew was in high school, he was one of the young men that I would use to speak on abstinence. He was extremely Mm. bold, didn't care about peer pressure. And in fact, during his basketball games, which by the way, he's on a state championship team. So they were highly watched games on local TV. His commercial that my grant produced was on abstinence. And all the parents used to say to me, he is so brave. And I said, So we just had this special connection. He had a love for God. He was a president of the Bible club at his high school. He traveled with me when I spoke. He would be a youth um, speaker for me. So, yeah, there there was a lot of dynamics there. Mm -hmm. And and my husband would say he and he and his mom both love seafood and my husband doesn't. So (laughs) we used to go. (laughs) We had a lot of time to go just to dinner with he and I for great seafood. But, yeah, it's a really good relationship. I I get what you're saying about these boys and their mothers. Uh, we have three boys, and there is a special connection there um, that, you know, we wouldn't trade it for anything, that's for sure. But then something really tragic happened. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, it is amazing. You, you think that when your kids are past a certain age that they're adults and you really don't have to worry anymore. But so three years I come out of this desert of grief. I mean, I've read every book possible. I have really grown in my walk with the Lord. My son, John, had a daughter four months before he died. I gave up working completely and stayed and had her three, four days a week at my house. But now she was going to be three and her mom was putting her in preschool. So suddenly I was freed up to go back to my world, back to doing my programs in the school, back to writing. And I I really did feel a new sense of renewal because during that time there was ministry. There was filling in the gaps with just nothing big, but just through personal relationships with people who were struggling. So I come out of that. Now, my mother, who was now moving back for good from Florida into my back apartment, Mm -hmm. they weren't going to be snowbirds anymore. They were living. They're going to come back here. And I was excited about that because I'm going back to work and she loves to cook. And I'm like, this is going to be awesome. She suddenly goes in for a routine procedure and winds up dying. And so now my dad has to, is coming back without her, his wife of 54 years. And then as I'm thinking, all right, Lord, you have equipped me to help my father through this grief. I've just been through three years of it and I'm going to sit in there with him and I'm going to hold his hand and walk through this. But eight weeks after my mother's passing, my husband received a call from his boss basically saying that Matthew, my youngest son, who was a professional soccer player at the time, never had any problem with him at all. You know, great student, Temple University graduate. 
and that he was involved in an at-fault drunk driving accident where the person in the car was killed. And mm. Sharon, now, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's grades mm. of slam, but I truly was never even looking in the direction of any waves where mm. Matthew was concerned. So that knocked me off my feet. That rocked my world. That made me question, who are we anyway as a family? I mean, one thing that that could be translated into, you know, risky behavior, but now another son. And I question whether we could ever survive that. At least they were the thoughts in my head. But in my heart, if you read my journal, again, it's so beautiful. If you're out there listening, you should be writing if you can. I tell people because you will forget your emotions and you will forget the things that you say to God or the things that he has answered back to you. But in my experience, as I went through those initial days of absolute fear, absolute, the unknown has just smashed us in the face. What was going to happen to Matt? I knew he was going to prison. Someone's loved one had been killed by my son. I just began to write. And when I look back at that, Sharon, once again, I see that solid rock of a foundation. I wrote things like, Father, I don't understand this. I don't know that I can get through this. I know you will carry me. I know you're a good, good God. I know you will make purpose. I know you will lift us up. I mean, I just, that's what poured out of me. So that's why, that's another thing I tell people all the time. When you are in pain and you are in tragedy, you have two options. You're either going to run from God and that will get you nowhere but further into a hole or run to him and then pour out your heart. Pour his word into you. That's where the answers lie. That's where beauty does rise from those ashes. So, yeah, that was a horrible, horrible event. And I never I didn't really in my physical realm think we would ever recover. But I always had the spiritual undergirding to know that God's hand was in it no matter what it looked like. I can only imagine the devastation that you experienced in those first days and the months. And like you said, the waiting, uh, waiting to find out what's going to happen to Matt. And I will tell you that Andrea shares a lot of her story in her book, Slammed. And also, uh, Andrea, as you know, we've had the privilege of interviewing Matt. And he shared his story so beautifully. You can go to markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to our Help and Hope audio library and find Matt's story. Matt spoke at our uh, local high school as well uh, when we interviewed him, and the kids still talk about it, and that, that's been a while ago. He has such an incredible story of God bringing beauty from ashes. It's, it's just amazing to see how his transparency to encourage teenagers especially has been so powerful to remind them that one bad decision can change your life forever. How did Matt's accident, how did what happened to him change your life forever? First of all, it bore my ministry, the Be Still Foundation, um, because mm -hmm. all Matt had kept saying to me through the whole process was Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. He would put it on my computer. He would put it with a sticky on, mm -hmm. into my room, in my bedroom, on my mirror. Because he could see my mm -hmm. angst. He could see my unsettled mm -hmm. as a mom. And I think that was breaking his heart even more. He knew all the devastation mm -hmm. he had caused. Um, so the Be Still Foundation was formed um, 
which then catapulted stories from across the country. I literally mm-hmm. spent the time he spent in prison answering people's letters of hope and encouragement mm-hmm. based on what they saw of the platform that the Lord gave Matt while he was in pre- prison, which was to just minister. And so he was writing a blog. I was posting these blogs. It just mushroomed. It, it's almost as a writer, if I wrote it, you would think I was creating fiction and you would say, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, mom, good idea. But it was so written by God. So it changed in that way where our ministry expanded exponentially. But more than that, it brought us to the other side of the criminal justice system. And you can only imagine what it would be like for a chief of an ex chief, a retired chief of police and now current undersheriff of a county jail, what it was like for us each week to stand in line at a prison certainly being with a majority of people that we probably would never have been in contact with in our lives, seeing some of the hopelessness, seeing some of the needs that needed to be met. And we made sure that we tried to do that. Every, every time we went to that prison, we had a new link to a new family um, to help, to assist, to guide through the bureaucracy of prison. We had a son who, while he was in prison, we became the conduit for other families that couldn't afford phone calls because it's very expensive mm-hmm. to put money on your child's mm-hmm. account um, to have these calls to be able to go through every day. So parents would call me mm-hmm. and then when Matt would call me, I would give messages and then their inmate mm-hmm. would tell Matt and Matt would call me and I would call their parent. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the mm-hmm. opportunities there were amazing. And mm-hmm. I will say that I would have never predicted how this went, but Sharon, here's again, another God thing. First of all, prior to prison, and I think it's in the book, but we had, we, we did prayer meetings. When I say prayer meeting, we had devotions in our house every night, except for on weekends, just because we were so busy. And we always just sit and kind of go back and forth on topics, current events, how they apply to scripture. So of course, naturally, my boys are all grown now. Matthew's 24 when this accident happened, but everyone came back home. And the night before we did what we always did as a family. And we sat down and we mm. read the scripture. And we prayed and we basically ended the prayer time with God is the one who changes the, you know, the heart of the king either way he wants it to. And that this judge has no power over your life. Only what God wills will happen. And we rest in that. And whatever God wills, we'll walk in it and we'll walk in it purposely. And that's how we ended our night. Um, they can learn more about Matt's story if they go on there. What happened in court? It was it was like seeing God in such a visible way. So having having that all happen was just this precursor that God was in this. So every weekend when we would go, parents, would, parents, spouses, brothers, sisters would be leaving prison crying. And I will say my husband would leave heavy because he, you know, is an overseer mm-hmm. of a county jail. So he knew more what was happening behind the wall than I did. I only knew what I saw. And what I would see was mm-hmm. this young man with the brightest eyes and the most amazing smile come out each week and share what God was doing in this prison. I would leave every single week without any trepidation. I would. So that's just the spirit of God upon me because that's Mm. unnatural. It was supernatural. And I would leave and I would actually be like, it is your mission, Lord. And that's how I felt. Mm. So of Mm. course, did I see that when this happened? Absolutely not. Could I have seen it? No. But as again, we walk through it in submission um, with our eyes fixed mm-hmm. on the Lord. That was what 
came out of it. I I am amazed by how you poured yourselves into the lives of other people too. I mean, I I'm thinking that to me that's supernatural because carrying the burden of your son being incarcerated that would require a lot of emotional energy. But as I see, part of the redeeming of your story is the way that you offered help and hope to so many others. It really, I see as a sign of trusting the Lord through all of this. And as you said, seeing this as your platform for worship and for serving him, even in the darkness, I, I, I think that's part of the healing process. When, when we talk about all of these broken places, mainly we've talked about you, Andrea, but surely this had an impact on your marriage. How did both of these uh, tidal waves and, and the death of your mother, because I know you were very close to her, how painful that was, what kind of impact did it have on your marriage and what counsel would you give to couples who are facing similar crises? Okay. And, and I, if you just would allow me to just backtrack one little second here. Um, from what mm-hmm. you just said about how we were viewing prison and how we helped others, you said you looked in your journal after Mark's death and you saw prayers that mm-hmm. were written that were directly attributed to what you were going through at that moment. And when I look back in my journal, I had always written, Lord, may I see with your eyes, feel with your heart and hear with your ears. And you know what, Sharon? <laughs> it was never more mm-hmm relevant than standing in a line with a lot of hopeless people to see with the eyes of Christ mm-hmm. and go, you know what, these are the very people I would have judged. So yeah, that mm-hmm. was that was a beautiful juxtaposition that my heart needed to make and the Lord was doing it and it was beautiful. As far as my marriage, mm-hmm. again, as I said, we have always had a strong marriage communication, date nights, all of that. The boys, I you know, they will tell you unequivocally, we have a very strong marriage. However, when John died, it was the first time in our marriage, believe it or not, and I don't know how you and Chuck handled this, but for the first four days, we didn't even speak to each other. Like, we were like two shadows. Like, we would just, people are in our house. He's doing, he's one what, he's taking care of certain things. I'm just sitting there immobilized. And it wasn't until like days later. And I think I, I wrote something in the book, like, we both took separate corridors. And we wound up coming out the same hallway. So, and I, again, Mm -hmm. I think that goes back to our foundation. I also think it goes back to the whole concept of always calling back to people. In other words, I had a friend Mm -hmm. who walked through this with me, who lost her son like 10 years earlier. And some of the things she said Mm -hmm. to me is, don't lose sight. We women, we share emotionally with each other. We cry with each other. We have a venting system. But our men sometimes don't. And if you know my husband, John, again, law enforcement, very stoic. Everything is introspective. Um, I then began checking on him. And then as a result, he would call me. How are you today? And you know what I found, too? I used to just praise God and go, the days John was having a horrible day, I wasn't. And I would be able to exhort him. The days I was sunk in the tunnel, John wasn't. He put his hand out to me. Mm-hmm. So I know how death can break a marriage up, but it solidified this marriage. It solidified it. And then when match tragedy came, it just about put it over the top because my husband's strength. And, and again, him being in law enforcement, 
I would never show up for work again if that happened. And I was, that was my, I would be so, he walked with such strength of integrity. I think Matt tells a story where he actually, when he first walks into the barracks to pick him up from the state police, he walks over and kisses Matt on the head and says, son, we will get through this. I didn't know that. I wasn't there. But I will tell you what I said when Matt walked through the door. I said, it should have been you. And Sharon, my response was certainly not what was in my heart, but it was out of anger of what the disgrace that you have now brought on our family, the disgrace of taking someone's life. So I vented that to Matt. And then, of course, later I spoke with them and just, you know, told them we're in this together. But that was my initial. But when I heard John's initial reaction, and guess what? I only heard mm-hmm. that through an interview. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. So my love for him, his strength, I just praise God every day that he put us together because um, he, we really, you know, together he has made us stronger. And, and we knew that we needed to do it together. I want to say one more thing. John and I had committed years before that we would get down on our knees every single night and it wouldn't be a big prayer meeting. It wouldn't be for the whole world. It would just be for our boys and for each other. So I, he doesn't, I pray for him. He prays for me. This is every night. Pray for our boys. He prays for me. I pray for him. So to hear each other exhort the Lord on behalf of the other spouse, again, strong foundational peace there. So I would say to any family, any marriage, when you are in a tragedy, you have to guard that marriage even more. I mean, as you might think, I don't have the strength. God does. God does. And ask him to mm-hmm. enable you to have the insight and the wisdom to be able to administer to the other partner. Andrea, I remember the night, actually, of Mark's death, a woman who had lost a son about two years before. She cautioned me and warned me and said, be careful what you say to your husband in these next few weeks, because you can never take back those words. And she said, I said things that were hurtful. I should never have said them and I can never get them back. And that was good. I thought that was good advice because, I, you know, when you're in grief, you're, there's anger, there's fear, there's all these things that push its way to the top. And you could say things that if you're not cautious and you're not being careful, can do more harm than you could ever imagine. So I really appreciate what you uh, have described in your marriage. You know, uh, you've probably heard this saying, Andrea, when I was growing up, I would hear people saying it was supposed to be comforting. A God will never give you more than you can handle. What, what do you think about that statement? Do you think that's true? And if you don't think it's true, why not? I love that because it's not in the Bible, number one. It is, it is the most <laughs> yeah. misquoted Bible verse that there is. Um, because you know what? God does give us more than we can handle. If you just look in the scriptures and you look at David and you look at Moses and you look at Paul and you look at any person in the scripture, you see they have more than they can handle. Why? So that they can realize that God can handle it. So God can show up. So we can let our hands off of the earthly and onto the heavenly. Because I'm telling you, Sharon, I had never, I would have never seen God in the way that I have experienced him. Had I not been pushed to outside of anything I ever thought I could imagine to handle in my life. Heartbreak, 
like that. I just, I couldn't even imagine it. And yet it was in those very, very dark moments that God is handling it for us. And I, I wish people would, oh, would truly get that by, by seeking after God or seeking people who they know have a relationship with the Lord. I, I had, through my Be Still ministry, one of the, I get so many heart-wrenching stories from people. But one that really grabbed my heart was when a mom wrote me and she said, I can completely relate to you. I lost, I too lost a son. And she said, and I have another one in prison. She said, only in my story, mm. it was my son that's in prison that killed his brother while he was driving drunk. Oh, my. And Sharon, they're the mm. people that I pray the Lord just gives me that word of hope and encouragement. To, to help them stay afloat mm. because I could not imagine mm. the weight that she has to live with, with that. So mm. yeah, no, I think God definitely gives us more than we can handle. And of course it doesn't feel good. And we're not going to say, yay, thank you. It feels good to be slammed and tossed around and thrown into a wave. But I will tell you this and you will say the same thing. The beautiful treasures, the lessons, the, the gold that we find at the bottom of the abyss in a spiritual way, mm. I wouldn't trade. And I know you wouldn't either. You kind of answered this question, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're sitting across the table from a mother, similar to the mother you just described, who is just hanging on to life by her fingernails. Maybe she doesn't have the kind of trust in the Lord that you have. Maybe she doesn't have the strong faith foundation that you have. And she, you can look into her eyes and you can see hopelessness. What you have just a couple minutes with her. What would you say to her that will give her hope to get through the next hour and maybe the rest of her life? That's so tough. I know because I've sat in that seat with women who are drowning. Mm. And of course, you can't give people faith. You can only offer them the hope that you have by your own faith. Um, one of the things I always tell, especially if someone's hemorrhaging, then I'm just going to help the hemorrhaging. And because I tell them in the stages of grief, I have my own little set and it's hemorrhaging and maybe bleeding comes next because the hemorrhage stops. Then there will be a scab and then there's the scar. And it's when you get to that scar phase. Mm -hmm. See, when you're in the scab, bleeding, and hemorrhaging, you're in dangerous water. So you, you need some first aid. Mm -hmm. The only first aid that I could give to anyone that I'd be sitting across the table to is I know your pain. God knows it even more. And he's there to listen. He's there to hear. And, and I think that's about all you could say to someone that doesn't have a strong faith is to be that example, mm -hmm. to be that hope, to have the right words when they're ready to hear those words. Because the worst things you could do is mm -hmm. to say words. When someone doesn't need to hear words, they need to feel the touch of your hand across the table. They need to see the tears in your eyes flowing down their face. But the only thing I can do is to testify of what God has done in my own life. And another important thing that I tell people like that, and I'm, it's resoundingly purposeful, is to find someone else that's hurting. Because the minute you start putting your pain into a purpose, it creates such a healing. So the minute you start ministering 
in the very area that you feel really hurt in, like if your child's using drugs and you don't know what to do, then get involved with a group where there's parents struggling in the same way and encourage someone or receive their encouragement. If you've been through a death, the same thing. Get out there and see what you can do to call back to say you you can make it through. Be their cheerleader. Be their stretcher bearer. Carry that stretcher for them in the time that the Lord gives you with them. I mean, it's just, and then just pray. I mean, I, I don't, I wish there was something I could say. This is exactly what I would say, but I think each situation is unique and each person's level of faith is going to dictate what they'll receive and what they'll use to keep them afloat. I know this, the word of God is purposeful and it gives us life and it teaches us and it holds us up. So it would be my hope that whoever's listening to this right now, get connected with a women's group, a Bible study, you know, in a good sound church. Allow those women to come alongside you and to be those ministers that God has created them to do. You will find that someone else has something and probably worse than what we have. You know, there's always a worse story. So um, not that that's what you're looking for, but you are looking to go, okay, God, I can handle mine. I'm going to go out and help somebody else with theirs. Thank you so much, Andrea, for sharing your story with us today. In Andrea's book, she says, I don't claim to have the magical answers. I simply have my story and a growing collection of life preservers that were pitched my way at various points in my struggle. And we are so grateful that today you have heard about some of those life preservers. If you want to hear more about Andrea's story, you can get her book slammed. We will have all of the information on the webpage at markinc.org. We'll have a link to her website so that you can contact Andrea if you want to. You can also hear her son Matt's story when you go to markinc.org. We are so grateful that you have shared your time with us. When you visit Mark Inc., you'll find many, many resources that offer help and hope to hurting people. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us today.